0: in Lake Wales. So. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are about ready to get started with class and there is some music playing that some of you might know. So does anybody know what that is? <laughs> yes, so that is Of the Father's Love Begotten, uh, which is one of the most ancient Christian hymns that we have going back to, I think around the fifth or sixth century. And this is the Advent Sunday carol service from Trinity College, Cambridge, that if you are on our email list, you got the link to this. And I would highly recommend watching it. It is absolutely spectacularly beautiful. Uh, It is very worshipful, and this is one of the great choirs in the world. And it is an interplay of doctrinally and theologically rich music, uh, along with scripture readings. And it is in this beautiful 16th century chapel by candlelight, and uh, it is well worth your time. So I would commend that to you. It will bless you if you choose to watch it. Um, The link is in your email already, so This is in the, if you've got the little email that said a Lewis tidbit, um, this is in that email. So I would uh, highly recommend it to you. Just as a little uh, aside, Trinity College Cambridge is the richest college in Cambridge or Oxford. I believe it has the largest, certainly the largest endowment in the UK, maybe the largest of any college in the world. Uh, because they happened to own a lot of downtown London, which was very nice that London grew up into their property. We have to listen to a little bit of this desk yet. I'm strongly tempted to just listen to this instead of doing class, but we're not going to do that, so let me get us over to our PowerPoint here. All right, here we go. So let us start off with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this night. We thank you for the season of Advent and for its richness. Lord, we pray that as we walk through this season as we walk through this book, that you would use it to deepen our faith in you, that you would call us more and more fully and deeply into the wonder of your love for us and for your creation. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you would join me in saying our verse, uh, this verse was great for the abolition of man, but it is even more apropos for that hideous strength. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, because the days are evil therefore do not be foolish but understand what the will of the lord is so i want to just say a word of welcome to everybody and especially to folks that are new Uh, we have new folks joining us uh, online every week which is a wonderful thing and if you are new just a word about how to approach this class Um, there are three levels at which you can participate you can be on the beach which means you don't do much of anything Um, You occasionally come to class, uh, but that's about it. You don't have to read. You don't have to think about it. Uh, That is all. You can just be at ease. And if that's all you want to do, that's great. I'm happy to have you. Or you can snorkel, where you go deeper just on the parts that interest you, and in the other parts you don't pay attention. That's totally fine, too. Or you can scuba dive, which means you go deep, you listen to everything, you read all the handouts. Uh, you follow the links that are in the email, all of that. And I do want to particularly commend uh, one of the handouts tonight is Lewis's essay, The Inner Ring. Uh, it is a an essay that deserves to be better known. So I would encourage you to check that out. So as we move into um, this new book, if you are not on our email list and you're following us online, please do Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and Shoot me an email, and I will get you added to the list. So, how to read that hideous strength. You will be happy to know, if you haven't started this book yet, that this is so much easier to read than Abolition of Man. You will not scratch your head. You will not get out a hammer and pound on things. Um, It is so much easier to read. But I would still encourage you to read it one chapter at a time. Don't sit down and just read, 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 read one chapter at a time, and I would encourage you to make a chart of characters, because there are a lot of characters in this book, and it will be easier to keep them straight if you make a list. Um, The second, or rather the third thing I would encourage you to do, now that we have all mastered the abolition of man, um, be on the lookout for themes from the abolition of man and the ways that they show up here. Um, What we're going to continue to do is build a framework for appreciating these books, try to unpack what Lewis is up to, look at how they're relevant today, and how we can respond with practices of hope and wisdom that are rooted in the scriptures. So a very quick review from the beginning. Lewis wrote these books um, way back during the time of World War II in the thick of World War II. He's writing because he was very concerned about what he saw happening in the culture As somebody who had been an evangelical atheist before, Lewis was very aware of all the arguments for atheism. He was also very aware of how an atheistic worldview would undo civilization as we know it, and so he was very motivated to write about this. He was also convinced that there was a crisis going on in the universities that would work its way down into secondary and elementary schools, and would rob students of the understanding of truth, beauty, goodness, and virtue. So um, he also was very concerned about the fact that philosophy, which had been the queen of sciences, was the reason that people went to college to study philosophy and the meaning of life, that that was starting to get squeezed a little bit. Now Lewis, one of his degrees is in philosophy. His first job was teaching philosophy at Oxford. So he's no slouch when it comes to philosophy. But he was very concerned about the fact that it was going to go away, and his prediction has come true. Uh, It is very hard in some universities to even find a philosophy course anymore when that used to be one of the great departments. And now, um, most parents, if their children say, I wanna study philosophy, will immediately say, don't do that, you need to get a job! Uh, Which shows that this whole transformation of education is now complete. Because Lewis said, there used to be a differentiation between education and training for work. And that if training for work ever took over education, our souls would be strangled. So he was quite right about that. Uh, We talked about uh, the example of the Green Book, which was a book for high school students, and how the approach in that book was to undermine the whole concept of uh, objective value. And Lewis falls back on Augustine and that idea of rightly ordered loves. This is an idea you're going to see in that hideous strength, because there are loves that they may be perfectly good, but if you put them too high up on the priority scale, they will cause disorder and they will wreak havoc, not only in your life, but in the lives of those you love. Uh, Another thing that we talked about was how Nietzsche was the philosophical um, underpinnings of a lot of these things that are happening in the culture and that Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault, who are very, very in vogue in academia right now, um, they are doing exactly what Lewis predicted. They have fully embraced it as if they read his predictions and said, okay, let's go do this. Uh, It's really quite chilling. Um, We talked about the second chapter, the way, uh, the idea that what Lewis calls the Tao, the law of human nature, um, what what the meaning of right and wrong is, all those kinds of things, that that is a real thing, that it is not just a subjective opinion, it is a real thing. And then we talked about the abolition of man, which is the chapter title for the third chapter as well as the book and the idea that what we call man's power over nature turns out to be a power exercised by some men over others with nature as its instrument. And we're gonna see that play out in uh, that hideous strength. So to just summarize briefly, men without chest, that chapter is about the importance of objective value that there are things that are beautiful, true, and good, that they're not a matter of opinion, that there are things that have that within them. The second chapter, the Tao, the natural law, is the sole source of all value judgments. What's right and wrong is not a matter of subjective opinion. And then thirdly, that this idea that conditioners are going to be the people who use nature and science and those kinds of things Uh, as a source of power over other men, and that their goal is to deconstruct so that there's no meaning, there's no purpose, there's no anything left. So um, the plot summary of the Ransom Trilogy, or the Space Trilogy, if you like that better, uh, I do want to just say a word. You can read that Hideous Strength on its own. You're going to see in the preface in a minute that Lewis explicitly says you can read it on its own. But this is not a surprise coming from me. Please read all three books, uh, especially if you're scuba diving. They will really enrich you, and they're really good. Out of the Silent Planet is a great story. Perelandra, I think, is Lewis's most brilliant creative writing. It is just simply astounding. So in Out of the Silent Planet, what happens is there is a philologist, uh, somebody who studies languages, um, not like learning different languages, but how language works and how words come to mean things. Um, he was a Cambridge professor on holiday, and he is kidnapped by the evil physicist Weston and his partner Divine. Hmm. might be a little play on words there. You'll notice it's misspelled. Um, Divine, who is a sleazy businessman, and he is taken to Malacandra, uh, that is Mars, Um, supposedly to be a human sacrifice. Can you imagine being kidnapped and then being told you're being put on a spaceship to be sacrificed by aliens? That would not be a good day. So uh, once he gets there, um, Ransom is able to escape and hide in a village on Mars where he befriends people and learns the local language. And he learns a little bit about this whole cosmology that Lewis has developed about what's going on. And the idea is that there is an angel or archangel called an Oyarsa who rules over each planet under the authority of God. And Earth is the one that is the cosmic battleground because the archangel of Earth, the bent one, fell. Does this sound familiar? Kind of like the biblical narrative of Satan He fell, and the world is under his power, and so the rest of the cosmos, um, these angels are working with God and the spiritual forces for good in the universe to try to bring Earth back. But that's why Earth is the silent planet, because it no longer speaks the language of the spheres and of God. So Paralandra is the second book, and it's also the name that Lewis gives to the planet Venus. And in this book, he envisions the story of, like Adam and Eve, creation, but without the fall. And what it would look like if the fall had never happened. And some of Lewis's most beautiful and luminous writing is in that. But then, wouldn't you know it, here comes Weston and Divine trying to crash into that world and spoil everything as well. So Ransom is sent to challenge uh, this evil that has come into the world. And then that hideous strength, the one that we are studying here, um, starts with intra-university politics, um, and it combines some Arthurian legend and then spiritual warfare. And there is an organization that comes to town called The Nice. How could you be against The Nice? It sounds so good. Um, But The Nice is coming in and they want to take over. And if you don't agree with them, then you are canceled, essentially. And so, gosh, might be relevant. Um, But the organization is secretly controlled by a pair of initiates who plan to revive the wizard Merlin and use his powers for evil. And so, in order to accomplish this, they need a seer, um, this woman named Jane Studdock, and... She is married to a guy named Mark, who is a professor of this college. And all of this is about trying to lure Mark into this inner ring in the college so that they can use him to do bad stuff. So we talked last week a little bit about the cosmology of deep heaven, and we're going to refer to some of these terms. So um, I'm just going to run through this quickly because we'll go all over it again. But mal is God. When you make your character list, this might be helpful too. Maleldel is God. The Eldela, that is more or less um, the idea of archangels. And then there are the Oyarsa who are also like angels or archangels. Um, the Eldela, like angels, sometimes have bodies, but not always. They can appear, but sometimes they're just spirits. Um, but they are powerful. They are powerful, and they are agents of Melodil, of God. Then uh, the Oyarsa are sort of leader angels, um, and they are immortal, and they are very involved in overseeing these planets. Uh, Hanau is uh, the word in this language Lewis invented called Old Solar um, for rational animals. Um, that refers to humans. Um, God is not now, um, but humans are now. Uh, that word actually has crept out of the pages of fiction, and it's now in the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, believe it or not. So, um, and then we talked about the Old Solar language, and I'm slightly obsessed with this. I'm going to try to control myself, but one of the things that is so cool about this is Lewis is using it as an analogy. For when, and you'll hear this in Christmas when we read the great prologue to John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him, well, it goes on, it's just beautiful. But every time there's that word, Word, there, it's the Greek word logos. And that word, logos, is this huge, beautiful, powerful, rich word that it means so much more than just word. It is the kind of word that when God spoke, let there be light, there was light. It's word that is powerful, that speaks things into existence. And we we miss that. English is sometimes impoverished on things like this, and it just can't communicate all that that means. And so Lewis is trying to play with that with old solar. And so He says, talking about old solar, it was as if the words spoke themselves from some strong place at a distance, or as if they were not words at all, but present operations of God, the planets and the pin dragon. For this was the language spoken before the fall and beyond the moon. And the meanings were not given to the syllables by chance or skill or long tradition, but truly inherent in them as the shape of the great sun is inherent in the little water drop. This was language herself as she first sprang at mal bidding out of the molten quicksilver of the first star. It's amazing to think about. So, that moves us to tonight. And what we're going to do, just so you know, is we're going to walk through this book. Um, I don't know how long it's gonna take us, but we're gonna walk through it. Uh, And so we will spend a little more time on the beginning sort of framing things. So in the frontispiece of the book, and with Lewis, there are two things that you probably, if you've been in these classes, you probably figured out. The frontispiece and the quotations and things in there are important. Um, The other thing that you'll notice from Lewis is names are important. His name, he's usually up to something with those. So the uh, frontispiece has this quotation from Sir David Lindsay uh, who was a poet in the uh, 1500s and he wrote a poem called A Dialogue that Describes the Tower of Babel. And one of the lines is the shadow of that hideous strength, six mile and more it is of length. And of course the idea of the Tower of Babel is man rebelling against God and saying, we don't need God. We're strong. We've made progress. Look at all the things we can do. We can build buildings that go up to the sky. We can control everything. We are in charge, and we don't need God. That's the whole premise of the Tower of Babel. And Lewis says that's exactly the same thing going on today. And then there's a very interesting little quotation in some of the editions Uh, because George Orwell, um, famous for 1984 in Animal Farm, reviewed uh, that hideous strength when it came out um, and thought it was really good. And one of the things he said was this, plenty of people in our age do entertain the monstrous dreams of power that Mr. Lewis attributes to his characters, and we are within sight of the time when such dreams will be realizable. Well, that certainly... Has come true. Um, But Orwell praised this book. He said it was a really great story. And he said the only thing is if Lewis had just left out that spiritual, supernatural stuff, it would have been so much better. But of course, that's the reason I think this book is so great, is that he weaves in all of the theology uh, of the Christian faith. So we're going to run through this preface. I'm going to read this to you. If you are on the beach, you can fall asleep right now. I'll wake you up when we get done with this part. So the preface, this is Lewis writing in 1943. I called this a fairy tale in the hope that no one uh, who likes fantasy may be misled by the first two chapters into reading further and then complain of his disappointment. If you ask why, intending to write about magicians, devils, pantomime animals, and planetary angels, I nevertheless begin with such humdrum scenes and persons I reply that I'm following the traditional fairy tale. We do not always notice its method because the cottages, castles, woodcutters, and petty kings with which a fairy tale opens have become for us as remote as the witches and ogres to which it proceeds. But they were not remote at all to the men who made and first enjoyed the stories. They were indeed more realistic and commonplace than Bracton College is to me. For many German peasants had actually met cruel stepmothers, whereas I have never in any university come across a college like Bracton. This is a tall story. It's a little pun about the terror of Babel there. This is a tall story about devilry. Now that is bold. Lewis, an Oxford professor, is talking about the devil. That is not cool in academia. This is a tall story about devilry though it has behind it a serious point which I've tried to make in my abolition of man. In the story, the outer rim of that devilry had to be shown touching the life of some ordinary and respectable profession. I selected my own profession, not of course because I think fellows of colleges more likely to be thus corrupted than anyone else, or maybe he did think that, but because my own is the only profession I know well enough to write about. A very small university is imagined because that has certain conveniences for fiction. Edgestow has no resemblance, save for its smallness, to Durham, a university with which the only connection I have had was entirely pleasant. You'll remember Durham is where Lewis gave the Abolition of Man lectures. I believe that one of the central ideas of this tale came into my head from conversations I had with a scientific colleague some time before I met a rather similar suggestion in the works of Mr. Olaf Stapleton. Olaf Stapledon was a science fiction writer uh, back in the 1940s. If I'm mistaken in this, Mr. Stapleton is so rich in invention that he can well afford to lend. And I admire his invention, though not his philosophy, so much that I should feel no shame to borrow. Those who would like to learn more further about Numenor and the true West must alas await the publication of much that still exists only in the manuscripts of my friend Professor J.R.R. R. Tolkien, those manuscripts that became the Lord of the Rings. The period of this story is vaguely after the war. It concludes the trilogy of which Out of the Silent Planet was the first and parallel the second, but can be read on its own. C.S. Lewis, Baldwin College, Oxford, Christmas Eve 1943. So, The interesting thing is that some years after this, uh, Lewis was approached by his publisher saying, some people thought the book was too long. Uh, Yes, so they actually told Lewis his book was too long, some people in the public. And so he did an abridged version of that hideous strength with the really delightful title, The Tortured Planet. And in that, Uh, He uses mostly the same preface, but this last little paragraph is really fun. He says, in reducing the original story to a length suitable for this edition, I believe I have altered nothing but the tempo and the manner. I myself prefer the more leisurely pace. I would not wish even war and peace or the fairy queen any shorter. But some critics may well think that this abridgment is also an improvement. So that is what is known as an academic insult right there. Um, He is poking at them and saying, you're too dumb to appreciate war and peace and the fairy queen. And so if you want the dumbed down version, here it is. So um, we're going to do a little walk through some of the characters in order of appearance, like a stage play. Um, One of the fun things about these books, and this is in the other handout, the covers that artists came up with for the different editions of these books are really quite remarkable. So you can see two of them here, and I don't know if you can tell, but that's like uh, a Gothic university tower that has been heaped over on its side, uh, surrounded by desolate landscape and an outsized planet. So, characters. The first one we get is Jane Tudor Studdock. And one of the things that you see very early on, as Lewis describes her, she had not been to church since her school days until she went there six months ago to be married. So Lewis is telling us that this is not someone for whom her Christian faith is any kind of priority, and she may have no Christian faith at all. Jane has married Mark six months before the story begins, and she leaves behind a career that she enjoyed. And since then, she's been working on her doctoral thesis on John Dunn. Now, there's great irony here. John Dunn, uh, for those of you who are not familiar with John Dunn, is probably the most well-known of the metaphysical poets. Um, He was the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London in the 1600s. Uh, He was uh, the single father of 12 children. His wife died in childbirth and left him with these 12 children. Um, And in spite of all that, he wrote some of the greatest sermons and greatest poetry and was deeply Christian thinker and philosopher. And so, The fact that that is the person on whom she is doing her academic work is quite ironic. So she's working on this doctoral thesis, but she can't really make much progress because she has a really bad attitude because she's sorry for herself. She sits around every day feeling sorry for herself and wondering what has she done because she feels like her husband has suddenly turned into a jerk. Now, I'm sure no ladies here have ever experienced that emotion. But in any event, she thinks, what happened? We used to have all of these talks, and it was so great, and we were so in love, and then we got married, and nothing left. And she says she feels like she's in solitary confinement. And she sits around every day with nothing to do, twiddling her thumbs. She does not want to have children, because that would impede her career as a scholar. But the thing that really is a problem for Jane Studdick, who tries to do her best to be a present herself as a smart, upwardly mobile, progressive, young career woman, is that she has these vivid dreams. And they are unasked for, and she doesn't know what they mean, and they don't have people in them that she knows. And she has... Dreams that are very often things that are very strange and they turn into nightmares. And so in one of the dreams that she has, she sees the process of a man being beheaded by having someone grab his head and literally twist it off his body. Now that would be pretty disturbing. I hope you do not have that dream tonight. So she's very disturbed by that. It was horrible, and it was so horrible it made her wake up. So she's really wanting to embrace the normalcy of an English morning. So she gets up, and she makes herself breakfast and a cup of coffee, and she pulls out the London paper, and to her horror, gazing at her from the front page of the paper is a photograph of the man she saw beheaded. Uh, a man named Alcassan. And in the dream or nightmare, she saw several people speaking to him in French. Now, this may be a little dig against the French, but uh, said so there are people speaking to him in French. And when she sees this picture of what she hoped was an imaginary horrible thing, it really, really disturbs her. And she also is reminded that her dream morphed from this weird beheading of this guy to another old, bearded, mystical, druidical looking man in these ancient robes like a mantle of a magician. So, she is uh, in a place of angst, shall we say, as the story begins. François Alcasson is an Arabian radiologist who very nicely poisoned his wife. Don't get any ideas, anyone. Uh, He poisoned his wife. Uh, He was an academic researcher and scientist of sorts. And he was caught. They were able to prove he poisoned his wife. And he was sentenced to the guillotine for this crime. However, before he was executed, Jane saw him in that dream and saw the picture where his head is twisted off. So she is very disturbed about François Alcassin. Merlin. How many of you ever read The Once and Future King or The Sword and the Stone or any of those kinds of things? So we're going to have to uh, bone up on King Arthur as we get farther into this book. And there's a good reason Lewis brings all that Arthurian stuff in that we'll get to later. But Merlin is one of the chief characters out of that um, Arthurian mythology. He's an ancient druid, Um, a bearded man in a mantle from Arthurian days, and he also appears in Jane's dream. And he is somebody with a pagan past, but he is also someone who has been deeply influenced by early British Christianity. One of the things that Lewis was very aware of, and that you may have heard about if you've been coming to the adult forum on the history of Anglicanism, is that contrary to what is taught in many schools, including leading secondary schools in the city that shall remain unnamed. Um, Christianity did not come to England in the 7th or 6th century, or the ninth century, as is sometimes taught. Christianity came to England in the 1st century. And Roman soldiers brought the Christian faith. The Christian faith grew and multiplied in England, said that by the early 300s, When there was a synod of bishops in France, there were multiple bishops, Christian bishops from England that went to the synod in France. So Christianity was clearly there in England very early. And if so if you've ever studied Beowulf and you were mistaught that there's no Christian influence in Beowulf, Um, you can go back and reread it and see that that Christian influence is actually there. Sorry, that's my little set box. So the next character, Mark Gainsby Studdick. Mark is a fellow in sociology for five years at Bracton College. A fellow is, that's sort of like being a tenured professor in our country. Things are very different in England. Professor in England equals like chair, somebody that holds a chair. Um, Somebody who's just a regular, um, what we would call like an assistant professor, is called a Don in England. And if you're a Don that does a good job and is well respected, you will be elected by your peers in the college to be a fellow of the college. So Mark is a fellow in sociology. Now if you've read a lot of Lewis, one of the things you will know is Lewis did not think that sociology was a real thing. he looked down his nose at uh, sociology uh, and thought that it was just a lot of theories and bunk, to say it nicely. So um, the fact that Mark Studdick is a fellow in that shows you what Lewis thinks of his true intellect. So Mark, in the story in chapter one, is talking with sub-warden Curry. Now, you may think a warden is either in a prison or on a vestry. Uh, but that is not the case here. Um, the warden, uh, this is again English terminology, warden more or less equals dean. In some colleges in England, warden equals master, which is another term that's used, which equals president of the college. So um, the subwarden is like, more than likely like the dean of the college. It's a very powerful academic position. And curry, um, in addition to being a spice, what is curry Um, if it's a verb? What do you usually curry? Yes, you curry favor. And that is exactly what Mark Studdock and curry are all about. Curry is all about currying favor, toadying to the people in power and trying to get ahead. So Mark talks with subwarden curry, And he discovers that Curry is inviting him, this young, lowly fellow, to be part of the progressive element. Now, if you've read much Lewis, again, you know that's the worst thing that you could ever be called as a progressive. Um, Lewis is all about what he calls chronological snobbery, which he would define as people who are so full of their own self-importance that they think that their age is wiser and they themselves as individuals are wiser than any person that ever lived at any point in the past in the history of the world, no matter how famous or accomplished or world-changing that person might have been. Not that we have some of that in our culture. But Mark Studdick is thrilled. This is his goal to get in good with the people that are the movers and shakers in the college, and he will be able to move on and have a brilliant career. So he's very excited about that, and he learns sort of to his chagrin. He thought it was because he was so great that he had been elected a fellow by his peers, but then he learns of this guy, Lord Feverstone. It's another fun name, Lord Feverstone had leaned on people and used undue influence to make sure that Mark was appointed. Well, guess who Lord Feverstone is? Do you remember the sleazy businessman, Dick Devine? Well, he's been elevated to the peerage now, so he is now Lord Feverstone. So he's still sleazy, no matter the fact that he has a title. So... Curry is the effective head of Bracton College, and the nice uh, with whom he is associated, he believes the nice marks the beginning of a new era, the really scientific era. And Curry wants to cultivate Mark Studdock so he can use him to support his agenda in the college. So Lord Feverstone, Dick Devine, um, who's appeared in both the previous books and the Space Trilogy as one of the villains, um, Mark is not happy to discover that he's been his patron. Mark doesn't even know Feverstone. There was another scholar named Deniston who was actually better qualified, but he was not the one that they picked uh, because they held him in disdain. So Deniston, you will see, uh, is also a sociologist, but when he was saying to Mark why Deniston was not very good, listen to what he says. One sees now that Denniston would never have done, most emphatically not. A brilliant man at that time, of course, but he seems to have gone quite off the rails since then. With all his distributivism and whatnot, they tell me he's likely to end up in a monastery. So the worst thing you can be, according to this progressive element, is religious. So all of that is going to play into things. So um, we're going to move into a little summary Chapter one is called Sale of College Property. So we see the story starting off uh, with Jane sitting alone in their home and feeling sorry for herself. She thinks she's in solitary confinement. Um, She feels like Mark has abandoned her. And Mark works, this is a peculiarly British thing. There are several colleges in England, um, including some at Oxford and Cambridge, that don't have students. Now that seems very odd to us, but boy, it is a great gig if you can get it. Um, If you like to research, they're beautiful. Like one of the great ones is in Oxford that's right across from the Radcliffe camera in one of the most beautiful parts of Oxford, and there are no students at all. And you go and you can live there. If you're a fellow, you live in these beautiful medieval palaces and you get to spend all day thinking great thoughts and reading things that you enjoy and occasionally writing an article. So it is uh, the definition of that wonderful old word, sinecure. It is a sinecure. If you can get that kind of job. So Mark is at this college. Um, and it's hard to get jobs as fellows at colleges with no students because everybody wants them. Uh, so he is doing very well for himself. But she is reflecting back, and again, this is somebody who's not religious, but she remembers that line out of the marriage liturgy that says, mutual society, help and comfort. And she doesn't feel like she's getting any of those, and so she's quite angry about that. So she tries to work on her dissertation, and then she gets very frustrated because she is reading from uh, one of Dunn's poems called Love's Alchemy we're gonna take a little detour here. I don't know how much y'all remember about alchemy. This was a big thing um, in kind of the age of magicians in the early middle ages. And it's the whole idea that you can figure out how to turn some ordinary things into gold or maybe even silver, but gold is what you really want. And so there are all these ideas of potions and combinations to turn things into gold. And then of course, if you can make gold, you can make yourself rich. Uh, But this is called Love's Alchemy, about how do you take love and make it into something even better? And there's this dialogue that goes back and forth all through this poem about the idea of platonic love, that sort of love of the mind, love of mutual interest, all of that, and bodily love, and sort of this, between these two extremes, um, rather than ever admitting that the truth is both of those together. So it's this dialogue, and she's very confused by it, and that she's very offended by this line. Very offended. Uh, The line is, hope not for mind in women, at their best sweetness and wit, they are but mummy possessed. Well, that is pretty offensive, Um, but you have to remember this is part of the dialogue in the poem. And so this, again, is showing that sort of academic point of view that doesn't really understand uh, what an author is trying to accomplish in a work. So she's puzzled by this. And so she's frustrated by that. And then as she looks away from her work, she sees that picture in the newspaper. And she's very disturbed, seeing al not knowing who he was in the dream, and that whole twisting the head off. And... Part of what is disturbing to her is that she thought that he was dead, and then this, there's this other guy that's like the druid, and she's not sure if it's the same person, but he's like coming back from the dead and talking to people, and what she thinks is Spanish. And so the whole thing is really confusing to her, as it would be to anyone, and she's very disturbed by it. So she can't sleep. So meanwhile, while she's suffering home alone, dealing with nightmares and all of that. Her husband is out drinking in pubs and currying favor uh, with the powers that be in Bracton College. So Mark is uh, going on a walk with Warden Curry, and he is invited to be part of this inner circle, and he's very, very excited about that. So he is not happy about Lord Feverstone, but he doesn't even allow that to dim his joy that he is being brought in to the cool group, the inner circle, the people who are really movers and shakers of the progressive element. So there are a couple of themes in here um, that we're gonna unpack, uh, but not all of them tonight. So the first thing that you'll notice is in the dream or nightmare, the head is pulled off the body. So, what was the title of the first chapter of the Abolition of Man? Men without chests. So, we're going to have a head that doesn't have any chest. And this head is going to reappear. So, there also, he's laying the grounds about sociology versus what he calls real science. We're going to explore more of that later. There's also a tremendous amount in this book about gender roles. And that was controversial back then. It's still controversial today. But part of what Lewis's thesis is, is that the scriptures teach that men and women are different. Not that men are better than women or that women are better than men, but that men and women are different. They are not the same and uh, that there is glory in that, and that when you have man and woman together, you have the fullness of the image of God. And if you have either on their own, you don't have that fullness. And part of the idea here that Lewis is trying to get at is that there is beauty in God's design, and that when we try to make men into women, or we try to make women into men, that we are rebelling against the created order. Now, of course, Lewis did not have in mind surgical alteration, he couldn't have imagined that, Uh, but that is the kind of thing that he thought might come in the future. And then the fourth theme in this book, um, right early on in the chapter, is this idea of the inner ring. And that's what i want to talk about for a few remaining minutes. Um, The inner ring, I think, is such an important concept because it's something that all of us have been dealing with pretty much since we were on the kindergarten playground of the in-group and the out-group. And there is a lot in Scripture about the way we are to treat people, and most of what is in Scripture says we are not to discriminate. We are not to... Um, think that we are better than others or we are not to kowtow to the rich man and ignore the poor man, any of those kinds of things. Lewis starts this essay off with a beautiful quotation from Tolstoy's War and Peace. Uh, If you're scuba diving, please do read the whole essay. It's really not that long. The handout, I think, is maybe three pages front and back, something like that. But I just want to read you some excerpts. So Lewis says this, I must not ask whether you have derived actual pleasure from the loneliness and humiliation of the outsiders after you yourself were in, whether you have talked to fellow members of the ring in the presence of outsiders, simply in order that the outsiders might envy whether the means whereby in your days of probation you propitiated the inner ring were always wholly admirable. I will ask only one question, and it is of course a rhetorical question which expects no answer. In the whole of your life, as you now remember it, has the desire to be on the right side of that invisible line, i.e. that line where you would be accepted by others into their group, the desire to be on the right side of that invisible line ever prompted you to any act or word on which, in the cold, small hours of a wakeful night, you can look back with satisfaction. And the prophecy I make is this. To nine out of ten of you, the choice which could lead to scoundrelism, its a great word, being a scoundrel, will come, when it does come, in no very dramatic colors. Obviously, Obviously bad men, obviously threatening or bribing, will almost certainly not appear. Over a drink, or a cup of coffee disguised as triviality and sandwiched between two jokes from the lips of a man or woman whom you've recently been getting to know rather better and whom you hope to know better still. Just at that moment when you're most anxious not to appear crude or naive or a prig, the hint will come. It will be the hint of something which the public, the ignorant romantic public would never understand something which even the outsiders in your own profession are apt to make a fuss about. But something, says your new friend, which we, and at the word we, you try not to blush for mere pleasure, something we always do. And you will be drawn in if you are drawn in, not by desire for gain or ease, but simply because at that moment, when the cup was so near your lips, you cannot bear to be thrust back again, into the cold outer world. It would be so terrible to see the other man's face, that genial, confidential, delightfully sophisticated face, turn suddenly cold and contemptuous to know that you had been tried for the inner ring and rejected. And then, if you are drawn in, next week it will be something a little further from the rules, and next year something further still, but all in the jolliest, friendliest spirit, It may end in a crash, a scandal, and penal servitude. It may end in millions, a peerage, and giving prizes at your old school, but you will be a scoundrel. That is my first reason. Of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. My second reason is this. The torture allotted to the deniads in the classical underworld, that of attempting to fill sieves with water, is the symbol not of one vice, but of all vices. It is the very mark of a perverse desire that it seeks what is not to be had. The desire to be inside the invisible line illustrates this rule. Once the first novelty is worn off, the members of the circle will be no more interesting than your old friends. Why should they be? You were not looking for virtue or kindness or loyalty or humor or learning or wit or any of the things that can be really enjoyed. You merely wanted to be in. And that is a pleasure that cannot last. As soon as your new associates have been staled to you by custom, you will be looking for another ring. The rainbow's end will still be ahead of you, The old ring will now be only the drab background for your endeavor to enter the new one. The quest of the inner ring will break your heart unless you break it. But if you break it, a surprising result will follow. If in your spare time you consort simply with the people you like, that is not people that can get you ahead or do things for you, but just people you like, you will again find that you have come unawares to a real inside that you're indeed snug and safe at the center of something, which seen from without would look exactly like an inner ring. But the difference is that the secrecy is accidental and its exclusiveness a byproduct, and no one was led thither by the lure of the esoteric, for it's only four or five people who like one another, meeting to do things that they like. This is friendship. Aristotle placed it among the virtues. It causes perhaps half all the happiness in the world, and no inner ring can ever have it." And this will be something when you read it that you should spend a little time chewing on. I know it's a little hard to just get while I'm reading it, but what Lewis is saying is that striving to be in the end group can never satisfy you. And it will cause you to compromise your character and do all sorts of things that in the clear light of day you would never believe that you could do. And it is not Satan, as we said, coming in a big black limo, getting out with his pitchfork from the back seat and saying, come get in my car to do evil with me. That is not the way it works. It's something that just seems maybe a little shady, but not too bad. And then you start on that slippery slope. So, moving to some practices of hope and of wisdom, um, let's say together our verse from Philippians. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And there's deep truth in there. And as we think about the inner ring, uh, if you want to do some extra scuba diving homework, Go watch the old movie, Mean Girls. Mean Girls is a perfect illustration of exactly what Lewis is talking about here, but set in a modern high school. So, the first practice is to meditate on Psalm 1. If you do not have Psalm 1 as a regular part of your devotions, please do yourself a favor and familiarize yourself with this. One of the things you may know um, about the uh, Hebrew worldview is that beginnings and endings really matter. So the first psalm is a particularly important psalm, and it is full of wisdom that if the characters in that hideous strength had followed this, they would have stayed out of a world of hurt and they would have avoided the whole idea of the inner ring. But I would invite you to say this with me, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. There is deep wisdom in that psalm. So I'd commend it to you to reflect on. Secondly, uh, following Lewis' advice, pray for, practice, and cultivate friendships. We live in a culture that is impoverished in terms of its understanding of friendship. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, has some great stuff about friendship that we'll pull in at some points in this course. But part of what he says is we mistake what he calls clubbability for friendship. And what he means by ability is somebody that you might run into at your club, your men's club or your garden club or your bridge club. You see them, they're familiar, you don't dislike them, um, they're pleasant to pass the time with. Uh, but that is not friendship. Um, Aristotle uh, gives some of the most beautiful teaching about friendship that is actually quite consonant with what the scriptures teach, as well. And the idea of that is that friendship is love. It is a deep love. It is a love that is self-sacrificial and seeking the good of the other. And that it is a love in which there is deep, deep joy. And what Lewis says is that you should find people that you really like and spend time with them. And our culture has moved away from intentionality and friendship. Most of us just respond to whoever calls us up and wants to do something. The idea of praying through, who are the people, God, that you have put in my life, that you desire me to pursue friendship with? That will revolutionize your friendships if you begin praying that prayer. Pray that God would help you be aware of who he's calling you into friendship with, and then to begin to practice and cultivate that type of friendship. Cultivating is work. We've talked about that word in other classes. It means sometimes you've got to go dig out the rocks before you can cultivate. But this is one of those things that if you do it, it will change your life. And one of the things Lewis believed deeply is that God calls us into friendship with people and that if we fail to honor that, we will have gifts within us that are not called out because we cannot call them out just on our own. We need others that we are in deep fellowship with to help call those gifts out. And the Inklings are a beautiful example of what that looks like when it's happening the right way. And then the third practice to help combat all of this worldliness and the progressive element is to embrace Advent disciplines. Most of the Advent disciplines are ancient disciplines. The Advent wreath is an old tradition. Um, that I would commend to you to stop every day, spend some time with the candle lit, praying, reading some scripture. Advent devotions, there are lots and lots and lots of them. Um, They don't need to be long, but they do need to be every day. They will transform your walking through the season. If you don't know a good Advent devotional, please shoot me an email and I can recommend some. Advent hymns. Many of the great hymns of the church the most ancient ones are Advent hymns. And the texts of these are really, really rich theologically. And I'll send out some good examples of that with the email, but if you just Google ancient Advent hymns and then just read what comes up, that will be a blessing. Um, The Trinity College Advent Service that we watched a little bit of at the beginning, I really commend that. It is a beautiful thing. And last but not least, go to church. If you go to church every Sunday during Advent, you will hear the readings of the prophets anticipating Christ's birth. You know, going to church is a discipline. Um, Sometimes we don't remember that, but it's a discipline. And so embrace that discipline during Advent. So as we close, let's say again our verse. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of these books and for Lewis's work. Lord, we pray that as we lean into this new book, that you would help us to see through your eyes, Lord, that you would wash our eyes through the lens of what is good and beautiful and true and most especially wash our eyes through your word and Holy Spirit that we might cling to you and the things of your kingdom even in a world where there is much darkness. Lord, we pray you would use us as light and salt. We pray that you would help us to love this world that you have made and those made in your image in it. Lord, I thank you for each person here tonight and pray your blessing on them in Jesus' name. Amen. So thanks for being here. Before you go, please see if there's someone in this room that you have not met before and introduce yourself um, so that you will know one another in the future. Thank you for coming and be on the lookout for the email.